Hey, I'm so glad that you're uh, joining us again this week. I'd love for you to grab a Bible. Go to Matthew 6. Back there this week, we were in there last week. This is our second week, Matthew 6. If this is your first time hanging out, glad you're jumping in. You can go back and listen to the other sermons. We're in this series on prayer. And uh, the reason we're doing that, we said this last week, is most of us pray. Most of y'all pray. Even if you just shout out a prayer in your car, uh, on the way to work, whatever it might be, most people pray, but we said this, that we can pray wrong, right? We can pray wrong. A lot of us grow up learning to pray. In fact, some of y'all are funny because you sent me some of the ways you're praying, right? Uh, One lady sent this, like, dear Lord, I pray for wisdom to understand a man, love to forgive him, and patience for his moods. Because Lord, if I pray for strength, I'm just going to beat him to death. (laughs) Man, I'm praying for you, whoever sent that in. Uh, This person sent one, uh, dear Lord, so far today, I'm doing all right. I've not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or self-indulgent. I've not whined, complained, cursed, or eaten any chocolate. I've charged nothing on my credit card. But Lord, I'll be getting out of bed in a minute, and I think I'll really need your help then. I that one, right? Whoever sent that one in. This person sent one and said, here's how I pray, Pastor Nan. Please, God, if you can't make me slim, make my friends fat. <laughs> I love that, right? Uh, somebody sent this to me, right? The senality, so serenity prayer, they, the senality prayer. Grant me the senality to forget the people I never liked anyway. The good fortune to run into the ones I do and the eyesight to tell the difference. Love that. And then this one, somebody sent me, right? Dear God, my prayer for this coming year is a fat bank account and a thin body. But please don't mix them up like you did last year. Amen. I love that, right? Some of y'all funny, right? Those are funny. But here's the deal. We can pray wrong. And that's why we're saying this. We can learn to pray. I read this, and I haven't had a chance to verify this, that Jesus asked somewhere over 300 questions. There's a book written that says that he only answered three directly. Now, whether or not that, I haven't verified that, but it's interesting. He answered far less questions than he asked. Jesus was a great question asker, but one of the questions that he answered was, teach us to pray. The disciples said, teach us to pray. He answered that one. I do know that, right? And and this is what we find is that he taught them to pray. This then is how you ought to pray, and he taught them to pray this way. It's a very familiar prayer. Most of you know it. You've heard it at weddings or whatever the case may be, but he said, this then is how you should pray. Can we just say this together? Will you say it with me? Uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We broke it down last week and we said this, that prayer, our Father in heaven, prayer is just simply the God talking to and with the God who invites us into his family. That hallowed be your name, it's broken up this way, your, your, and your, hallowed be your name, as we want to reorient our lives around the truth and the treasure of all that God is and all that his name represents. Your kingdom come, we're saying advance your kingdom in us and then through us. What are you up to? And then your will be done. Sometimes our wills wrestle, you win, we change. Sometimes our wills will wrestle with God. He wins, we change, prayer changes us. But then we kind of go into the second part of the prayer where he says, give us daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. That's where I want to spend a few minutes today. He says, give us 
our daily bread seems like a small and very benign part of the prayer, but give us our daily bread is actually a cry of dependence. It is an eruption of gratitude. I would say this, it's a declaration of contentment and it's a reflex of generosity. There's no slide for that, that might be worth writing down. It's a cry of dependence, it's an eruption of gratitude, it's a declaration of contentment, and it's a reflex of generosity. This last weekend, I was reminded of something. We had uh, our grandkids, and uh, there's our grandkids, right? Corbin and Ava. And uh, what I was reminded of is as empty nesters, my wife and I are empty nesters, you forget a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm just tired for starters. Uh, but, but I'm reminded when you have little kids in the house, some of you are like, tell me about it, preach it, man, right? This is the only amen I'm gonna get the whole sermon, right? But, but you no sooner get done with breakfast and you get cleaned up from breakfast and it's like time for lunch, right? And you get cleaned up from lunch, right? Get done for that and then you're like, what am I gonna do for supper, right? Uh, here's the deal, man, it's, it's like they can eat. They can eat. Now, lest you're thrown off by appearances, that little girl can put it away, man, it's amazing. Uh, those kids, here's what happens, they kept coming back to the table. And they, they every mealtime, they kept coming back to the table. They didn't bring any food with them. <laughs> Not once did they bring any food. They never offered to pay me for the food we were feeding them, right? Uh, we didn't charge them, although that's not a terrible idea. I'm just saying, right? Didn't charge them once for any of the food, right? Uh, they didn't have to earn the food. Why? They're my grandkids. I'm not gonna make them work for the food. I love them. I love them. So what did they do? They kept coming back. They came back Friday night. They came back Saturday morning. They came back Saturday for lunch. Now, they didn't store up a week's worth of food. You know what they did? They just ate what was in front of them because they were going to come back and they were going to keep coming back. When you begin to understand that, you begin to understand kind of the essence of the declaration of dependence. It's a declaration of dependence on God. Here's really what we're saying. Now, we're going to fill this in, so be careful when you take notes because we're going to add to this sentence. But the first thing we're saying is, Father, we trust you to provide what we need. Uh, this prayer, give us today our daily bread, is an acknowledgement of our everyday dependence on God for everything we need. It's a way to remind ourselves that everything we have passes through the Father's hands. Everything we have comes from Him. We bring nothing to the table. We can't earn it. He doesn't charge us for it. We don't buy or barter for it. We simply receive it because we're His kids. Now, I need to tell you something. This part of the prayer is directly connected. You may have never seen this to the first part of the prayer where he says, hallowed be your name. Because declaring my trust and dependence on God, my trust in God, my dependence on God, is part of hallowing his name. There's this passage in Proverbs chapter 30 says, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. That's our, remember that? Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. He says, I don't want so much that I become arrogant and not grateful, but I want my day, please provide my daily bread because I don't want so little that I got to take matters into my own hands as an act of self-reliance, namely stealing. 
When I stop acknowledging that everything I have comes from God, I stop hallowing his name. And what happens is I either become arrogant or I I become self-reliant. Hallowing his name is an eruption of thanksgiving and a declaration of contentment. So let's fill our sentence out. It's saying, when we say, give us today our daily bread, Father, we trust you to provide what we need. And we will be thankful and content with what you give us. It's a cry of dependence for sure, but it also is an eruption of thankfulness and a declaration of contentment. They go hand in hand. When Jesus told them to pray, give us today our daily bread, their minds, good Hebrew backdrop to it would have been, their minds would have gone to the ancient story of the Israelites walking through the wilderness. They were freed from Egypt and they got hungry. And God provided them with daily manna. You remember that story? Anybody remember that story? Daily manna. Uh, that, that word manna, is, it just simply means this. What? What's this? You know, like, they look like, what is this? But every day he would provide this. What's interesting, in Numbers chapter 11, you can read the story in your own. But the children of Israel in the wilderness, they're getting this daily manna. They got grumpy. And they start complaining. And they start complaining to Moses, their leader. And they start saying to Moses, their leader, man, we, we, we long for the days when we were back in Egypt. Think about what they're saying. We had melons and leeks and cucumbers and onions. They longed for the day they were back in Egypt, eating those things, shackled as slaves. Like their memories were short. They're complaining about the daily bread. Moses is so distraught. He, he's like, God, he like says to God, Numbers 11, like, I just want to die. Why'd you burden me with leading these people? They complain, they, they murmur, right? They're, they're, they're causing a ruckus. They're discontent. So God says this, he raises up other leaders and then he says, I'm going to give them over to their cravings. God says, I'm going to provide so much meat so much quail for them that, 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 that they're going to have more than they know what to do with. So God provides in a miraculous way. Read the story. It's fascinating. Quail for them, Numbers 11. And there's so much quail that even as they're eating it, it begins to rot in their mouth. And then there's this interesting verse in Numbers 11. Therefore, the place, many of them died, the place was named Kibroth Hatava. Normally we just bypass those names, right? But I want you to say that with me. Kibroth Hatava. Because there they buried the people who had craved other food. Do you know what Kibroth Hatava means? It means the, write this down somewhere, the grave of their cravings. That valley is named the grave of their cravings. Here's the deal. Some of us are dying in the grave of our cravings because when we stop being grateful and content with what we have, what our Father is providing us, He eventually, Numbers 11, will give us over to our cravings and many of us are dying in our own Kibroth Hatava, the grave of our cravings. 
You see, this is a declaration of dependence on God, trust in God to provide, and it's this eruption of thankfulness. And it is this, it is this uh, declaration and statement of contentment. He says, give us today our daily bread. Notice what he says, give us our daily bread. When we pray, give us our daily bread, we, we, this isn't just an individualistic prayer, are declaring our faith in God. And we are declaring our faith in God who is a father who is passionate to provide for us. He has the power to do so and he has a perspective that we do not have. We erupt with gratitude. We declare our contentment. But there is something else going on here. When we pray this, we are deciding there is a reflex of generosity with what he provides us. He says, give us our. It's plural. Give us our. Listen to me say it this way. When I ask my father to pass the bread, I have to see that I'm sitting around the table with lots of other people. And sometimes the bread he passes to me is the provision for the brother who's sitting next to me. You know what I mean by that? Like, I, my brother could eat, man, when we were growing up. And sometimes I would say, hey, can somebody pass the potatoes, right? I didn't have any potatoes, and my brother's got potatoes. And, man, he could eat. And sometimes he'd take his last the potatoes, right? He'd put them on his plate. And, and he already had potatoes on his plate. And he put them on. I'm like, dude, I didn't get any potatoes, right? You see, I got to think when I say give us our daily bread, that sometimes what God passes to me is the provision for the brother next to me. You see, here's what he says. Father, this is what we're saying. Father, we trust you to provide what we need. We will be thankful and content with what you give us. Help us to share what you give to us. Share it because we're part of the same family. We're part of the same family. Galatians 6 says, make sure you do good to everyone, especially to those who are part of the family of believers. 1 John chapter 3 says this. Write this down. Look it up. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You see, when we share what we have, we share because we're part of the same family. But we also share because we want to advance his kingdom. This part of the prayer goes with the first part. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us our daily bread so that <clears throat> we can, being dependent on you, share with those in need in our family and so that we can advance your kingdom in the world. That's why... March the 12th and 13th, we're doing a Feed My Starving Children event here at our campus. I want you to be a part of it because we simply are going to gather and we are going to make meals for people, for children across the world who don't have enough to eat. Why? Because God has passed us some bread that we want to pass out. He's given us some material possessions that we want to pass out. And so I want you to be a part of that. Write that down on your calendar, May 12th through 13th. We want to make sure that we share with those in need. 
But then what's interesting is this. He says this, and here we go. Not just give us our daily bread, but and say it with me out loud. Forgive us our debts. When I was five and in kindergarten, I was in love with my teacher. <laughs> Her name was Miss Appleman. Uh, Miss, I was in love with Miss Appleman. She had a rule in, in the class. I remember the rule. And the rule was this. I mean, she had her back turned us. Talk. She was writing on the chalkboard. That's what we had back in the day, right? No smart boards or whiteboards. Chalkboard. When she had her back to the class writing on the chalkboard, there was to be no noise whatsoever. But that was her way of saying, I want you to pay attention to whatever I'm writing. One day she turned and she was writing on the chalkboard, probably our ABCs or something like that. Now she's writing on the chalkboard. Uh, all of a sudden... A kid in the class did something that was shocking. That kid whistled <whistles> like that. And that kid happened to be me. Did I tell you I loved my kindergarten teacher, right? Yeah. I mean, she turned and I whistled. Here's what happened. She turned around as quick as I whistled. And she said, who in the class whistled? She wanted to know who, who did it. I can guarantee you I wasn't going to raise my hand. I was not offering that information. So she did something. It was a unique way of trying to find out who whistled. She like, Nobody told on me either. Now, I was one of the bigger kids in class. I don't know. Maybe they were afraid. But she lined us up. She lined us up and she had us all whistle so she could recognize the tone of the whistle. Unique way to find the whistler, but this she did it. So she went down to class, and some of the kids whistled. And those kids who couldn't whistle, she said, you go sit down. But everybody who whistled stayed standing. She got to me. Danny, why don't you whistle? And I went, <laughs> I said, I can't whistle. And I sat down. And she went through that line with the whistlers and found the whistler, right? And some little kid got in trouble because I whistled, denied that I whistled, right? And if you're that kid watching this today, I am so sorry that you got in trouble. But I remember at the age of five, that's when the first experience that I remember where guilt began to press into me. And, and I wrestled with what to do with that guilt. So I did what my instincts told me to do. You know what my instincts told me to do? Hide it. Deny it. I was afraid of being seen as guilty. I was afraid of the repercussions from the woman I was in love with, right? My kindergarten teacher. You see, I heard a pastor say this recently, and I agree with him. Confession gets less cute as we grow up. What I think he means by that is as we grow up, it goes from a whistling when the teacher turns her back to a hiding the secret attitude the bitterness in my heart the secret relationship the secret addiction the secret deception and those secrets begin to hurt others you see that's why this part's in the prayer <clears throat> He says, forgive us our debts because our childhood <clears throat> instincts remain the same. And our instinct even now is to hide it, justify our wrong, to deny it. Jesus is teaching us to pray in a way 
that is constantly placing my thoughts and my attitudes and my behaviors in the light of the truth of the God who is my Father, the Father who knows all the hidden things in my life. He knows all the hidden things in your life. He knows all the hidden things in my life. And I can try to hide it. I can try to justify it, rationalize it. But he says, I can come and confess it. Forgive us our debts, our wrong, our sin, our guilt. We're simply saying, Father, we need your grace to experience pardon for our guilt. We find ourselves at a table with a Father who already knows all the hidden secrets. And confession is simply me calling it what he calls it, agreeing with God on it. Confession, confession is placing my guilt under the care of his forgiving grace. How do we do that? How do we do that effectively? Get your pen. I want you to write a couple things down. I think confession is asking God to examine my heart. Write this word down constantly and consistently. I think of Psalm 139 that says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's an offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I heard a guy put it this way this week. He said in the ancient days they would build city on top of city on top of city on top of city. So now when archaeologists excavate, they have to dig layer by layer by layer. And I really think when I come consistently and constantly to God, I'm asking him to dig and excavate the layers of my heart. Uh, C.S. Lewis in one of his books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, illustrates this. When Eustace, the boy, kind of as a picture of sin that he can't seem to get rid of, has these scales, this, this skin of, of almost like dragon-like scales that the more he tries to peel it off, the thicker it grows back. Eventually, the lion representing Jesus in his book, C.S. Lewis's book, said to him, he says, the lion says, I know you'll have to let me undress you. Eustace said, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you I was pretty neatly desperate now, but, but I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart, and when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you ever pick the scab of a, scorp uh, a sore place, it hurts like so much. I know exactly what you mean, Edmund said. Now listen to this. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying in the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. The lion caught hold of him. I didn't like that very much, for I was tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. What a picture. What a picture that the only way for us to get to that point of healing is to allow him, in C.S. Lewis's words, to undress our heart. 
or to excavate our heart constantly and consistently. But I would say don't write just down constant, consistent. I'd write this down, be specific with my sin. First John says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we'll make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Be constant, consistent, but be specific. You ever go to the doctor and if the doctor is going to help you, you go into the doctor's office and you don't just simply say, uh, I'm sick. What do you do? You give the doctor specific symptoms that you're feeling so that the doctor can deal with whatever's going on, right? And I think the case is here that if I just, if, I, if I'm general, then I'm not excavating my heart, then I'm not getting to the core. I would write down the word be specific. Come to God and be specific. But then I would say this, write this down somewhere, don't minimize don't minimize the cost of his grace. Ephesians 1 says this, He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with wisdom and understanding. Here's the deal. Confession for the follower of Christ is a cry of victory. Yeah that erases the fear of having to keep up appearances. Spiritual maturity is not in not needing to confess, but spiritual maturity is in having the freedom to confess. That the mature Christian is not the one without sin. The mature Christian is the one who is without secrets. And confession is trusting in the grace of the forgiving God and Father that we're confessing to. Then he says this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Father, I want you to forgive me as we've forgiven others. I think this is how it fills out. We need your grace to experience pardon for our guilt, but help us to extend that grace to others who've wronged us. I think what he's saying is it's hard to kick my brother or sister under the table while I'm receiving the grace and the pardon from my father. Uh, Tim Keller says this, if we've not seen our sin and sought the radical and costly forgiveness from God, we'll be unable to forgive and seek the good of those who've wronged us. So unresolved bitterness will be a sign that we're not right with God. It also means that if we're holding a grudge, we should see the hypocrisy of seeking forgiveness from God for our sins, for the sins of our own. You see, confession is not only the victory cry because there's freedom to be able to agree with God on the secrets, but confession is the impetus to revival in our heart, revival in our homes, revival in our church, and revival in our community. Confession is the path to forgiving. I was reading, I was listening to a guy's sermon, and he used this illustration. It was just very interesting to me. He's talking about Malcolm Gladwell. And uh, he's an author, best-selling author. But he grew up in a small town, and he had this childlike Christian faith. But when he moved to the city... 
to New York City and uh, was all of a sudden confronted with the pluralism of the city and the second, all those things, he lost his faith. He rediscovered his faith in the most unusual way. And uh, I would say it this way, that Malcolm Gladwell rediscovered his faith not through inspiration, not because somebody inspired him, but he rediscovered his faith through confession. What I mean by that, in 2013, he was a staff writer for The New Yorker, and he was covering a developing story that had happened in Winnipeg, Canada. Uh, in Winnipeg, Canada, there was the largest manhunt in their history going on, and that manhunt was they were trying to capture whoever was responsible for killing a young gal. This young gal they had found in the freezing cold, tied up, uh, deceased, hands and feet still tied up. Uh, when they, when Gladwell got there, he got there and they were having a press conference while the perpetrator was still at large. And the press conference had the mom and the dad speaking. And at this press conference, the father said this, we'd like to know who the person or persons are who did this. So we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing from these people's lives. Then the mom pulled the mic to herself and she said, and I quote, I can't say at this point I forgive this person, but I can say we've all done something dreadful in our lives or have felt the urge to. Gladwell was so intrigued by their story and their spirit that he went to their home and in their garden sat with them and began to hear the Dirksons was their name story. And he said, and I quote, it was one thing to read in a history book about people empowered by their faith, but it is quite another to meet a, an otherwise very ordinary person in the backyard of a very ordinary house who's managed to do something utterly extraordinary. Their daughter was murdered and the first thing the Dirksons did was to stand up at the press conference and talk about the path to forgiveness. We would like to know who the person or persons is, her dad said, so we could share a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. He says, maybe we have difficulty seeing the weapons of the spirit because we don't know where to look or because we're distracted by the louder claims of material advantage. But he says, I've seen them now and I'll never be the same. He'll never be the same, not because of an inspiring talk, but because of the act of forgiveness. You see, that's what this prayer is praying. Father, we need your grace to pardon our guilt and help us to extend that grace to those who've wronged us. One last part. You with me? You still good? He says, and lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think if forgive us as we forgive others is maybe the hardest part of this, this one might be the most confusing part. Uh, yet we recite it, and I'm not sure we think about what we're reciting. First of all, it's confusing to ask God not to lead us into temptation because it begs the question, would God ever do that since the Bible seems to teach something different? Doesn't the Bible teach in James 1.13? And remember when you're being tempted, don't say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. So why in the road would Jesus teach us to pray something that God said he wouldn't do? 
Why would he do that? I don't know. Good luck. <laughs> the key to understanding is uh, this is to understand the word temptation. The Greek word temptation is pregnant with meaning. Parasmon. Uh, it's used twice in James 1, but it's used in two different ways. The first is this word can mean to tempt or to trap, to solicit somebody to do evil. He says, when each person is tempted, they're dragged away by their own evil desires and they're enticed. That's temptation. But it also can mean a test or a trial which can produce good. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, same Greek word of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The first time, uh, it's referred to as temptation that I need to avoid. The second time, it's referred to as a testing that I need to consider joy that can produce maturity. Jesus is saying testing times will come. James, the one writing this, says they're inevitable. They come in different flavors. They're unpredictable. I think when we pray, lead us not in temptation, we're praying this, Father, we want our test to train us, not to trap us. You see, it's not if times of testing come, but when they come. And what we're saying is we don't want to be devoured by them. We want to be developed by them. That I want pain, pressure, inconvenience to develop my faith, not deteriorate my faith. And I would suggest this, that as much as adversity can be a test to my faith, so can prosperity. And I want success and prosperity not to deteriorate my faith, but to develop my faith. How? How does that happen? It happens by going to our Father and asking him to lead us in times of testing so that those times of testing don't trap us, but that they train us. Because our tests become opportunities to listen to our Father in unique ways. I might fi face a financial test, and it could be an opportunity to trust God in a new way or allow God to expose what I'm really treasuring in my heart. Or I could follow the lure of the enemy and the desires of my heart and believe that God doesn't care and he doesn't love me. Some of you are in that right now. I might face the test of a relationship and it might be an opportunity to trust God and follow his lead and forgive and in so doing to understand in a deeper way his forgiveness for me. Or I can listen to the lure of the enemy and wait for justice and seek revenge and end up trapped in bitterness and resentment. I think that's what he's saying. Why does he say, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one? Because when times of testing come, I have two battles. One is from within. When times of testing come, it reveals the idols in my own heart. And I don't want those idols to trap me, but I want to eradicate those idols so that they can train my heart. I have a selfish, prideful heart. I can get in enough trouble on my own. But he says, deliver us from the evil one because when times of testing comes, our battle isn't just within our own sinful heart, but our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle isn't the culture, our neighbor or whatever, but it's against Satan, the principalities of the evil one. And Jesus, when he was praying for his disciples, says, God, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one.
I think to fill the prayer out is, Father, we want our test to train us, not to trap us, so help us not to live defeated lives, defeated, giving in to our own sinful desires or insulated lives, but somehow help us to live lives that will make an impact as we trust you in the middle of the test. You see, here's the deal. These last couple years, some would say I've been testing. And for some of us, it's revealed things in our heart. And for others of us, we've given in to the lures of the enemy. Times of testing can trap us or they can train us. And that's the prayer. Give us today our daily bread. We need you. We're thankful and content with what you give us. Help us to share what we have. Forgive us. Excavate the depths of my heart. Show me what's wrong. I'm going to be specific when we get there. And I'm never going to minimize the cost of your grace to forgive me my sin. And how that's going to show up in my life is I'm going to forgive those who wronged me. And that's how revival happens in our heart, in our home, in our church, in our community. And then lead us not into temptation when testing comes. I pray that you would expose and help me to eradicate the idols in my heart. And protect us, deliver us from the evil one who wants to destroy. Not by insulating us, but by helping us to trust you in grabbing your hand in times of testing. And so will you end the way we begin? Will you say this with me out loud? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Jesus' name, amen.